So we're, we're in the uh, start of a year and we're going to spend a few weeks, just, just four weeks, looking at Psalms 1 to 4. That's, that's the plan. That's, that's what we're doing. And it's, it's worth me saying at the start, this is not the beginning of an incredibly long series going from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, which at the rate of us doing four a year would probably go beyond my death. Um, so that's not what we're doing. We're going to just look at the first four Psalms um, and we're, we're going to try and work out what what God is saying to us from those Psalms. Now, it's not entirely random that we chose Psalms 1 to 4. Um, we could have, you know, theoretically, we could have chosen Psalms 16 to 20, but we didn't. We chose Psalms 1 to 4. And there's a reason for that. It's because these big Psalms, from the beginning of Psalms, they introduce some of the big themes of the book of Psalms. So if you understand Psalms 1 to 4, it will help you no end in reading the rest of the Psalms. Um, so as you kind of are introduced to different uh, characters, different phrases, different ideas in Psalms 1 to 4, you will find these pop up again and again and again in the book of Psalms. Um, one of uh, my suggestions for you, uh, so last week uh, we were in Psalm 1, and Scott was talking to us about the importance of uh, reading the Bible, trying to find a way to do that. Um, one of the things that I have done um, in my life is read through um, Tim Keller's book of devotions on the Psalms, which is called My Rock, My Refuge, I think. Um, it's one page for each of them. Um, and so I just encourage you, why not, on the, on the back of uh, looking at these Psalms, why not just grab a copy of that and just have a go at working through those this year? You might find that really helpful. I think they're uh, really helpful. You look at a bit of a Psalm, he gives you a bit of chat about them. Um, I found them really helpful when I was looking through those. Um, so, last week we were introduced to two key characters from the book of Psalms. We were introduced to the blessed person and to the wicked person. If you understand who the blessed person is and who the wicked person is in the book of Psalms, you'll be off to a good start, okay? You'll be able to, because you'll see those people appearing again and again in the book of Psalms. And interestingly, the blessed person is not the person who's got loads of money, who lives a really healthy, uh, carefree life. That is not the blessed person. So often when we talk about, oh, they're just so blessed, that's what we mean. We mean, oh, you know, they've got a nice family and a nice house and like, they're just so blessed. That's not, what the ble that's not who the blessed person is in Psalms. In Psalms, the blessed person is the person who knows God, who encounters him in his words and who knows the forgiveness he offers. That's who the blessed person is. Yeah, you, can, you can be blessed according to Psalms, and have no money. You can be blessed and have none of the things that we would instantly go, oh, look how blessed that person is. Because that's not who the blessed person is in Psalms. And so in Psalm 1, we're introduced to who is the blessed person. But we're also introduced to who is the wicked person. And interestingly, the wicked person isn't primarily the person who just does terrible things, although they do do some terrible things. And that's not primarily who the wicked person is. The wicked person is the person who doesn't know God, who rejects God, who rebels against him, who goes his own way, and ultimately who fails to find the salvation that God offers. If you understand that that's who is being talked about when you read, oh, blessed is the person who does this, or not so the wicked, they are like this. If you understand that that's what, who those people are, you'll understand the book of Psalms a whole load better. And as you read through it, you're forced to ask the question, who am I? Like, who, where do I fit into that? Am I the blessed person or am I the wicked person? That's, that's the question you're forced to answer again and again and again as you read the book of Psalms. Where do I fit into that story? 
Who am I? And this week, we're going to be introduced to another of the great characters of the book of Psalms. So Psalm 1 is about the blessed person and the wicked person. Psalm 2 is about the king. The king is one of the central characters of the book of Psalms. You'll see psalm after psalm referring to and talking about the king. He's going to come up again and again. And just speaking personally, I find some of the psalms about the kings, I find them some of the hardest psalms to kind of get my head around and to work out what to do with. For example, Psalm 45, one of the great psalms about the king. It begins like this. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my, recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. And as I read that, I just think, doesn't that just sound like old-fashioned patriotism? <laughs> like, isn't that all it is? Just kind of old-fashioned patriotism designed to prop up despots and authoritarian leaders. Isn't that the kind of thing that people said hundreds of years ago about the kings? And that the kings would encourage all their subjects to say, oh, the king is the most excellent of men, you know, so to be praised, noble themes. You know, it just feels like that to me. It goes on, it says this, let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. You see, I read those psalms and at best they can feel slightly irrelevant, like why are we talking about a king? And at worst, slightly jarring and infuriating because they don't really have the kind of democratic thinking that so dominates the way that we view the world. And so really all I want to do this afternoon as we chat about Psalm 2 is I want to see if we can get our head around two questions. Question number one, why is the king such an important character in the book of Psalms? Why are we going to keep coming back to the king over and over again? And then the second question, which leads on from that, is how do we understand Psalms about the king? How do we understand these kind of Psalms as, as we read the book of Psalms? So let's get to it. If you've got a Bible open, Psalm 2, let me, let me start uh, at the beginning. A very good place to start. Verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Okay, there, in those first three verses of Psalm 2, you can start to understand why the king is such an important figure in the Psalms. It's because God sees all of human history from beginning to end as fundamentally a battle between rival kings. That's how God understands all of human history. Human history is a battle between two kings. On the one hand, you have God and his true king, described in verse 2 as his anointed one. You've got, that's, that's one king that you will see again and again in Psalms. But on the other hand, you have the kings of earth, these rival kings. And what are they? They are determined to rebel against the king of heaven. This is, this is how, you, how the book of Psalms understands human history. It's a battle between two kings, kings of earth and the king of heaven. And what is it the kings of earth say about God's kingship? They say this, verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. 
You see, that's absolutely foundational to the world the Bible describes. That is the world as the Bible understands it. The story of what went wrong that's told in Genesis 3. That story is the, the beginning of this story. It's the same story. It begins with a, a world where God is the king of all creation and human beings are to rule under that king. And what do human beings do? They say, in essence, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We don't need to do what God says. We can be kings ourselves. We can rule this our own way. And so they do the one thing that God has forbidden them from doing. They break the chains of God's king's dominion. And so the story of the world is the story of rival kings. As you read through Psalms, you should have that in your head. This isn't just unique to Psalms. This is the entire way the Bible understands human history. It's a battle of who is going to be king. And and isn't it not just the world of the Bible? Isn't it also the world we live in now? Isn't, Isn't that the world we inhabit? A world where God has been largely pushed out. Where we, he's been pushed out of politics and we say, you know, things like, well, I don't do God anymore. He's been pushed out of education. We, we live in a world, don't we, where we've said, let's free ourselves from God's shackles, from those chains that bind us. Let's create a world without God and without his king. Interestingly, uh, as I was thinking about this, this is the world um, that is famously described by uh, Nietzsche's madman. I I don't know how familiar you are with the story Nietzsche tells of his madman, but you'll probably know the central line of Nietzsche's madman, which is, God is dead. The the full quote goes like this. it's, It's kind of amazing. It says this, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe the blood off us? What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? See, that's the world that Nietzsche's madman describes, a world where we have pushed God out, where we said, God is dead. We have killed him. And now we have to fill the space. That's the world of Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. And it's the world we live in, a world which has conspired and plotted and raged against God and his king. A world which has done everything it can to release itself from the chains and shackles of God's kingship. A world which has sought to overthrow and kill God and which is now left desperately trying to rule over a world which we're ill-equipped to rule over. As I I look about the world, I can't help but see Nietzsche's madman over and over again. Aren't, Aren't we desperately looking for forgiveness and yet in the absence of God unclear how we can receive that forgiveness or unwilling to offer it ourselves? Aren't we, to take the words of Nietzsche's madman, aren't we trying to invent our festivals of atonement and sacred games as we feel the loss of those which God put in place? Aren't we working to establish a thankfulness without an object, a forgiveness without a forgiver, 
a spiritual reality without the divine. You see, we've, we're living out Psalm 1 to 3. That, this is human history. Rival kings saying, let's free ourselves from God. Let's be free of him. Free ourselves from the chains and shackles that he would impose on us. Like the kings of verse 3, we've broken free and we found ourselves to be less like kings and more like madmen. Entirely unequipped to be the kings our world needs, desperately trying to fill the void left behind by God's absence. That's the world the Bible describes. That's the world of the Psalms. That's why the king is such a central figure in the Psalms. Anyway, let's move on. We've done one to three. Let's have a look at the next section, verses. We'll go verse down, four down to seven. Because that's one way the kings are described, but it's not the king being talked about in Psalm 45, is it? No, to meet that king, we, we need to look at Psalms, uh, at verses four to seven. Let me read on. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. There in verse six, we meet the other king who we will meet again and again in the book of Psalms. This is God's king, the anointed one who's talked about in verse two. God says that in the face of earthly kings who are setting themselves up against God and against his king, there is another king. God's king, his anointed one. And I'm just going to cut to the chase here and say, that king is clearly Jesus. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament because it so clearly talks about the king who is fulfilled in Jesus. The, 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 the kings and rulers who rage against God, seeking to overthrow and kill him, in Acts that those verses are applied to Pontius Pilate and to Herod, the kings who raged against God's king and said, let's kill him. Let's free ourselves from his shackles. Verse 7 talks about this king as God's son. And that verse is applied to Jesus multiple times, probably three or four times in the New Testament. Is that verse quoted as being specifically about Jesus? You see, there's, there's, there's two kings in the book of Psalms. There is the earthly kings waging war against God. And then there's God's chosen anointed king, ultimately found in the person of Jesus. They are the kings of the book of Psalms. So as, as you read Psalms, and specifically as you read Psalms about the king, let me encourage you to read them as always truly about Jesus. So when you think about Psalm 45 and it says, our heart is stirred by a noble theme as we sing praises, as we recite verses for our king, what should we do with that? We should let that king be Jesus. We should let that noble kind of theme that stirs us, we should allow that to be Jesus. We should recite verses about Jesus. He is the king that Psalm 45 is talking about. One of the tips that I kind of found when, uh, years ago when I was like, looking through and studying the Psalms was someone just said, every time you read the word king in Psalms, not earthly kings, but every time you read about the king, 
God's chosen king. Just replace it with the word Jesus and just see what it does. Like, just read it and go, what if instead of the king there, it said Jesus? I just found that really helpful just in helping me to understand what I do with these psalms that are about God's king. As we read songs of praise to the king, we should allow that always to be speaking of and stirring our emotion to the greatness of Jesus. So, so they're, the, they're the two kings. We've been introduced to them, one to three, earthly kings, four to seven, we've seen kind of uh, God's king, God's anointed one. Let's, let's move on uh, just briefly and look at the rest of the psalm. Verse eight, nine, let, let, let me read those. Ask me and I will make the in- nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So, so if in Psalms we have rivals for the throne, we have earthly kings, God's anointed king, at war with one another, the question is, who is going to win this game of thrones? Who ultimately will end up winning the war and sitting on the throne? And in verses 8 to 9, we get a glimpse of God's kingdom. Look how it's described. There's, there's two factors that are critical to how it's described in verse 8 and 9. It is global in its reach. So all nations will be under King Jesus. And it is comprehensive in its victory. Enemies are dashed to pieces like pottery. It's not a partial victory. It's not an uneasy rule with constant insurrections popping up everywhere. The, The end point, God's kingdom, is going to look like this. It's going to be global in its reach. All of heaven and all of earth will be under the rule of King Jesus. And it will be total in its victory. There will no longer be rival kings setting themselves up against God's king. God looks at the rival kings and he laughs. Because there is ultimately no contest. God's king will be established and he will rule. God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. His rule will be established. So the psalm takes on this journey where we are introduced to these earthly rival kings and then we're introduced to God's anointed chosen king and then we see where that's going to head to to a final ultimate victory for King Jesus. Uh, And the question that you should then be left with is, so what? Maybe you've been sat here thinking, it's all very interesting. I'd never really understood Psalm 2 before, but what's it got to do with me? What am I meant to do with this? And the good news is that the psalmist is going to tell us. He's not going to, we don't have to guess and go, oh, well, maybe we should do this. Because he goes on and says, this is what you need to do in verses 10 to 12. How do we avoid playing a losing role in a pointless war? That's the question for us. This is what he says, verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here's what you should do. If you're, if you're here this afternoon and you kind of zoned off when I started talking about kings uh, and you, um, you're just willing to be pulled back in, what is it that you're meant to do about all this? Here's, here's what the psalmist says, two things. You are to be warned and you're to be wise. That's how we respond to this. Be warned and be wise. Be warned that setting yourself up against God is ultimately setting yourself up for defeat. You can do it. 
You can be a king of Psalm 1 to 3. It's possible. There's hundreds of them. There's thousands of them. That's why they're talked about in the Psalms. You can do that, but you need to be warned you're, you're fighting a losing battle. It is a war you cannot win. So we need to be warned. We are on the losing side of the war. It's like that moment in a film where someone says, have you ever thought that maybe we're the bad guys? Like, that's that moment. You read this psalm, you go, wait a minute, maybe I'm not on the side of the angels here. So, so we need to be warned, and then we need to be wise. We need to recognize God's king. We need to see his legitimacy. We need to open our eyes to the goodness of his rule. We need to allow God's goodness to go before us. And as we see his mercy and his compassion, we need to see what a good king he would make. And then, crucially, what does he say at the end? We need to submit to him as our king. That's what we need to do. The reason Psalm 2 is so important is because it is the story of humanity. From the beginning of history to the end of history, this will be the story. Humanity fighting a losing battle against God's rightful king. That is going to be human history. I can tell you it'll be human history in 100 years, 1,000 years, however long forward you look and however far back you go. That will be the story. Human kings fighting against God's rightful king. And because that is the great story of humanity, it is your story. This is your story. None of us are exempt. None of us are not playing a role in this story. We are all in it. The story of our life is primarily the story of us versus Jesus. That's the story of your life. It's the story of my life. If you're not a Christian here today, the story of your life is the story of you rebelling against and fighting against Jesus' rule in your life. That is the story of your life. If you don't know Jesus and you haven't come to follow him now. You're like the kings of verses 1 to 3 who see Jesus' rules as chains and shackles that you need to break free of rather than as loving rules designed to make you flourish. The decision you are making every day if you don't know Jesus and you haven't come to follow him, the decision you're making every day is are you going to carry on waging war against God's chosen king or are you going to accept him? Every day you make that decision. But if you are, if you are a Christian here today, if you are somebody who would say, yep, I know Jesus, I follow him, I, I understand who he is, here's what I want to say to you. Like, look at your own heart. Isn't this your battle too? Isn't this the battle that we face every day as well? This isn't just the battle that people who don't know Jesus face. This is my battle every day of my life. Every day, don't you fight the battle of who is going to be king in your life? Aren't you fighting that every day? As you decide how you're going to spend your money, the battle is between rival kings, isn't it? Who, who rules your life? You or Jesus? That's the battle. As you decide how you're going to spend your time, it's a battle between rival kings. Who rules? You or Jesus? As you decide whether or not you're going to turn away from sin and find forgiveness and restoration or keep walking that path, the battle is between rival kings. Who rules? You or Jesus? This is the battle of the Christian life every single day. Psalm 2 
is the story of humanity and it's the story of your life. And it's a story we need to engage with. And I think we specifically need to engage with it here in Hartlepool in 2000 and whatever year it is, 23. Um, it's, a, it's specifically a story that we need to think about. And this is why I think it's a story that we need to engage with. It's because I think there's a trend in churches in the 21st century in the West for us to want Jesus as our saviour, but not as our king. I think it's a problem in Western churches. I think there's a temptation that we come to church and we see our need of a saviour. We know we've messed up. We know we're imperfect. We know we need forgiveness. Um, you know, we come in, we know that we need a saviour. But we don't want someone telling us what to do. We don't want someone ruling over our life. It's like, can we have Jesus as saviour, but me as king? I think it's something that's going on in Western churches at the moment. But Jesus is both of those two things. He is, to take the last verse of this psalm, he is the king that we take refuge in. He is our saviour. Isn't that glorious good news? He is the king who protects us, who we can hide in and be rescued in. He is that king. But he's also the king that we're called to kneel before and kiss. And of course, those two things aren't even really separate things. Because he saves us by ruling over our life. He protects us by giving us good laws to obey. He is the king we serve, but it's only by obeying him, by allowing him to rule, that we can truly take refuge in him. His good rules are so often his means of protecting us. As we see him as king, we experience more of him as saviour. The two things are inevitably intertwined. 